as my wife would I can tell you what that means. Um, Preston's brought up, he goes, do you, do you know about Christian rap? I said, absolutely, I know about Christian rap. Trip Lee, there's some other good artists. And by the way, they've got some fantastic lyrics. I mean, just amazing theology that, that some Christian rappers are coming out with. Now, obviously, we don't do that on Sunday morning because some of us wouldn't be able to keep track, wouldn't understand, follow the words. But it's, it's been a great blessing for students and student ministry to get good theology. And, I, and so I decided to do a little trick. I said, have you ever heard the Christian rap that goes like this? To God be the glory, great things He has done. So love be the world, He gave us His Son. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the earth hear His voice. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the people rejoice. And he was like, man, that's pretty good. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, you know what that is? It's a hymn. <laughs> All the solid theology and great lyrics that rhyme and fit together really well. Guess what? That's hymnody. And the difference between hymnody and Christian rap is the pace, right? And, and the beat and some other things. But it was a teachable moment because whether you're at the older end of the spectrum, the more mature end of the spectrum, or the younger end of the spectrum, what the Christian heart really craves is not hymns or rap or something else. What we really crave is music that communicates good, sound doctrine of who Christ is, that He is our King, He is our Lord, He is our Savior. And so uh, maybe the student ministry and our more mature saints, maybe we have something to learn from one another. Because... There's a whole world of great Christian doctrine and music that's out there, whether you sing it to God be the glory or to God be the glory, great things he has done, so love be the world, he gave us his son. The truth is the truth is the truth. And so it was a one of one of many teachable moments there in Puerto Rico. Is the video going? Yeah. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Let the earth hear his voice. Um, so point three, first. Pastor got a bad haircut, and they called me the Pastor Rican after that. <laughs> Second, when you go on a mission trip, you get to rap hymns. And third, we saw a culture um, and a people, speaking particularly of the church itself, that was very open. Um, when, they, when they came to worship, some were welcoming and greeting. There was, there was no official greeting committee. It was just who they are. Welcoming you, hugging you, giving you kisses on the cheek. But others, preparing their heart for worship, were kneeled down at the front of the service just praying. Some audibly. Some were sitting in their seat, totally oblivious to what was going on around them. Just, just praying that God would meet them in that service. So however it is that God has fitted you to be a part of His kingdom and to be a part of what He would do at North Roanoke Baptist Church week in and week out, I hope you'll feel a freedom. And an openness that the Spirit of God gives and He grants to His church to, to be who God has made you to be in His body. And, and to not be so locked down by what other people might think. Who cares? Let the Spirit of God lead you into an openness that comes from Him. So, it's, uh, it's time for Mark's Gospel, chapter 6. Would you join me in turning there? Mark, chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. I've titled this morning's message, Honoring Christ and Seeing His Power. And you might say, well, that's exactly what doesn't happen in this text. They fail to honor Jesus, and therefore they fail to see His power. So why would you call it that? Well, I wanted something more positive than 
dissing Jesus and missing his power. Uh, sometimes the Gospels teach you by negative example, right? So what Mark wants you to do is not do what happened in Nazareth. And so he wants us to honor Jesus and see his power. Verse 1 of chapter 6 of Mark's Gospel. Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue and the many listeners were astonished saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him and such miracles as these performed by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own Household, And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. And he was going around the villages teaching. Over the last several weeks, well actually, why don't we stop and ask God to help us this morning. God, we, we ask that as we dive into the meaning of this passage, Lord, that you would be our teacher. Holy Spirit of God, that you would be present in this room. God, that you would... You would fill our hearts up to overflowing and grant us a freedom of hearing and of listening. God, that you would change us in the places we need to be changed. That we would look more like Jesus as a result of having heard your gospel proclaimed. And I ask it all for the glory of Christ our King. Amen. So over the last several weeks, we've been seeing Jesus prove that he has the power of God as the Son of God. He's got the power to still the storm on the sea. He's got power over the demonic forces of darkness and even disease and even death. He raises a girl at the end of chapter 5 up to life. She's dead. Jairus says, come heal my daughter. And he raises her up to life again. But when we turn to chapter 6, things quickly change. I mean, things are going good when you get to the end of chapter 5. You are not expecting what you read in verses 1 through 6 in chapter 6. Jesus goes to Nazareth and he can't do any miracle there. Why? Because of their unbelief. The change in Jesus' location brings a change in the story's tone. Stacy and I, we like to watch mystery shows. And I don't understand why they do this other than to make us, to draw us into the story. But, you know, the, the villain in the story goes into the, the house or the business or whatever and all the lights are out and somebody has no they've left their gun in the car or whatever and they run in there and it's all dark and you're just waiting for what's going to happen next and the music changes dun 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 that's kind of what's happening in chapter six i mean jesus is soaring he's healing people his disciples are like yes this is going to be awesome and then he goes back to nazareth he's like we don't want to have anything to do with you jesus You see, what Mark's transition shows us is that people's receptivity to Jesus and his message will not always be consistent with his power. Unfortunately, though we serve a sovereign God, the Son of God, sometimes people reject him. Like Jesus, the disciples can expect rejection. He's preparing them for mission. He's preparing them to be sent out with the gospel to the people of Israel. But they will often be rejected. And the rejection of Jesus must not stop us, church. From boldly pursuing Christ's mission in the world. You know, the church had it easy for a while in America. It was popular to be a Christian. You'd throw a fish on your business card because more people would come to you because they trust you. Now, in many places in America, you put the fish on your business card and you're the last place people want to go. It's not a business advantage anymore to go to church. 
We're not here because it's convenient. We're here because Christ is King. And if I've got my finger on the cultural tides correctly, and I may not, but if I'm right about the direction of our country, it's going to get harder, not easier, to be a follower of Jesus Christ. You see, when people take a mission trip and see the gospel go forward in power, it's easy to come home and be discouraged. Man, we worked hard all week. We saw open hearts to the gospel. We saw a discouraged church encouraged. And one of the questions that immediately bubbles to the surface of your mind after you go is, why can't we do here what we did there? And, and that's a complicated question because we can't all take a week off every week of our lives and go on mission in the way that we went on mission. So it's not as easy as, well, well let's just roll up our sleeves and do it. Although there's a lot of that that we could be doing. But it's a question that also comes, one of the answers is a convicting answer. Because sometimes people who are in a best position to serve Jesus on mission and to know who He is, reject Him. Jesus is in His hometown, literally His fatherland. And His disciples are doing what disciples should do. They are following Him. He goes to His hometown, His disciples are following Him. But His hometown is offended at Him. Sometimes we can become so familiar with Jesus that we stop following Him and start just evaluating Him. Nazareth was a little town 25 miles southwest of Capernaum. As Aiken writes, it was a nowhere town made up of nobodies. The population was between 150 and 200. And in John 1.46, Nathaniel says, a good Jewish boy, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, Nazareth? Now you think about this, it should have been a great point of celebration for the people of Nazareth that their son, their native son, was healing the sick and raising the dead, but instead he comes home and they're like, who do you think you are, big guy? And have you ever noticed that small towns often come with big pride? I mean, just ask anybody from Salem. <laughs> if you're here from Salem, we love you. It's a joke. Humor is a little levity's good. Don't get offended. I lived in Salem for a while. Loved it. But pride makes us unwilling to have our assumptions or our culture or our current practices or way of life challenged by the truth that Jesus is. Jesus goes right into the heart of the Jewish community, right into the synagogue. And He begins to teach. And when He teaches, He always forces a decision. You see, you can't get the miracle of the resurrection if you reject the authority of the one who is the resurrection and the life. You can't have it both ways. So the hometown rejects Jesus because they don't like His alien truth. Oh, He might be from Nazareth, but the truth He's bringing is something that's foreign to them. It's out of this world. It's heavenly. And He doesn't perform miracles or works of power there. And the question that raises for us, church, is has Jesus become too familiar for you? Is He too ordinary? Is He like everything else in your life? Is He just one of the things on the shelf? What we must do to see the life-changing power of God at work among us is we must never become so familiar with Jesus that He's ordinary to us. To encounter or enjoy the power of God, there's three things this text is showing us this morning. First, we must not let familiarity with Jesus prevent us from receiving Jesus' message. He comes teaching a message and they get offended. Secondly, we must not stumble over Jesus, but we must honor Him. And finally, we must acknowledge our brokenness and believe in Him.
I know you didn't get the notes in time because I was headed on my way to Puerto Rico. So I'll give you a moment. We must not let familiarity with Jesus prevent us from receiving Jesus's message. We see that in verses two and three. When Jesus teaches in the synagogue, there are many listeners. Do you see that in verse two? There's a lot of people who are listening, but not very many people are actually hearing. No one's actually receiving the message. <laughs> when Jesus teaches, his teaching is not just useful information, it is upsetting information. Whatever Jesus teaches, it, it upends our pride, it confronts us. And one of the greatest ways that God, God does this in our lives is he uses people that we wouldn't expect him to use, including the Son of God. As Aiken writes, the main idea of this text is we cannot come to Jesus on our terms. We must see Jesus for who He truly is. That presents a problem, incidentally, for the church in America, which has become fascinated with what I'll call practical teaching. You go to the self-help section of a bookstore and there's zillions and zillions of books. You go by most churches today and they say we make the Bible practical and relevant to your life. The problem with this approach is the Bible is not practically applicable to your life until it is first personally offensive to your life. Think about that. You see, often when we try to make the Bible practical, we're trying to fix a dead man. But you can't fix a dead man unless the dead man is made alive in Christ. When we try to make the Bible practical, we strip it of its own practicality. It confronts who we really are. And it must do that before we will ever become who Christ is calling us to be. We are incapable of living the life God calls us to unless we receive it from God Himself. The Gospel does not call us to make practical and convenient modifications to our lives. It calls us to die. Not to modify the deeds of our body, but to mortify them, Romans 8.13. And then take up an entirely different life, the life of Jesus. So many of our churches are talking about a few tasks they can add to their life, but Jesus is calling us to take up our cross and die daily and follow Him. We don't need a little modification, we need some mortification. We need to die daily and be raised up to life in the living Lord Jesus Christ. In Mark 1.22, Jesus goes to the synagogue at Capernaum and they are amazed at His teaching because His teaching is one having authority. And then here in verse 6, chapter 2, they aren't amazed at His authority, but they are astounded by it. And the difference between being amazed and astounded is only the context because in the Greek, it's the exact same word. In Mark 6, they're astounded in the sense of being offended. Mark 1, they're amazed and drawn closer. Who is this man? But in Mark 6, back in Nazareth, they reject the man. And they ask him questions. And the, the people of Nazareth are right about one thing, by the way. It's easy to be down on the people of Nazareth, but they at least made this association. You can't question the authority of Jesus' teaching without questioning Jesus. The moment you come to the Bible and you're like, I don't really like that part. It's going to get rid of that. Guess what? You can't have the Bible you want and have Jesus. You've got to have the Bible that Jesus gave in order to have Jesus. 
To quibble with one is to quibble with the other. Because what Jesus teaches is that we are hopeless without Him and He has come for us. And He is the Lord of our life. We take Him up as Lord. So they get straight to asking questions about Jesus, His background, His qualifications. Do you see that in verse 2? Where did this man get these things? They don't even call Him Jesus. Who is this guy? This man. They know who He is. He grew up in Nazareth. And now that who is this man? He had not studied under a famous scribe. They're basically asking the same thing that they ask in John 7.15. How is it this man has this learning when he has never studied? Secondly, what is this wisdom given to him? And asking this question, the people of Nazareth are right. The wisdom that Jesus has is a wisdom that is otherworldly. It's from heaven. But their mistake is in believing that the wisdom of Nazareth is greater than the wisdom that Jesus has. You see, the teachings that they had considered in the synagogue over and over on the Sabbath day, they were not teachings merely about Israel. They were about the Redeemer who was going to come to them through Israel. And when Jesus opens up the Old Testament and says, this is all about me, not all about you. It's about your need for me. Their wisdom is confronted. It's deconstructed. And they say, where did you get this stuff? Thirdly, how are these miracles performed by His hands? They don't deny his miracle working power, they acknowledge it. The very question, they, they acknowledge that Jesus has miracle working power, but how is it that he doesn't? They don't want to acknowledge who he is. As Aiken says, they simply cannot reconcile what he has done with who they think he must be. This shows us, by the way, that miracles are not enough to lead people to faith. I've talked with atheists and agnostics. They're like, if I could just see God do a miracle, then I'll believe. No, you won't. God raised His Son from the dead. He prophesied it eight centuries before He came. He came and did it exactly as the Word said He would do it. He appeared to more than 500 witnesses. The disciples died a, a death of crucifixion and martyrdom in defense of the thing that you say is a lie. And they never gave in. They never give up. They never crumble. And we have the clear witness of God's Word. What more miracle do you need? It's not about the miracle. It's about the heart change that this authoritative King of kings and Lord of lords is exacting of those who say, I'm going to follow you, Jesus. I'm going to follow you wherever you go, wherever you lead, wherever you take me. I'm abandoning my life and my claim to my preferences, and I am following you, Jesus. You see, the proud town shows her big pride in the strangest of ways. Suggesting God couldn't use somebody from the hometown. They needed someone with a more impressive background, more experience, more credentials. We used to talk at seminary about the fact that Jesus would have never made it past most pastor search committees. Can you imagine what it would be like? Jesus' resume in the front of the pastor search committee says here he's from Nazareth. Anybody heard of that? Nope, never heard of Nazareth. Where's that? That's uh, nowhere. Nobody. He preached off and on for three years, but the people just crucified him. Must not be a very good preacher. It says here he also led a small group, but one of the members betrayed him. His personal statement says he'll give us everything we need to honor God. Probably need to find somebody a little more qualified and a little less optimistic, don't you think? How quickly does the human heart default to human wisdom? So the people ask, isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and aren't his sisters here with us? We know who you are, Jesus. What are you doing walking up in here dropping that kind of teaching on the Sabbath day in the synagogue? 
Edwards notes that calling a person the son of a woman was not normal in Judaism. Even if the father had passed, you referred to the father. But in this case, they call him the son of Mary. They may have been suggesting that Jesus was an illegitimate son. And he was also a carpenter. And while being a carpenter was not a bad thing, manual labor was not a bad thing. In fact, it was very noble and high, highly regarded in Jewish culture. But everybody knows carpenters don't become kings. Plus, they knew Jesus' brothers and sisters. I mean, come on. According to John's Gospels, not even his brothers believed in him. John 7, 5. And you and I can understand why that might be, right? As John Bloom writes... Jesus outclassed his siblings in every category. How could anyone with an active sin nature not resent being eclipsed by such a phenom brother? I mean, can you imagine how many times James heard and the brothers heard from Mary? Boys, settle down. Why can't you just be more like Jesus? <laughs> Jesus comes walking back into Nazareth. We know who your brothers and sisters are. They don't regard you very well. But, but here's hope for us, church. Because after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, who do we find in the upper room, Acts 1.14, but the brothers of Jesus, worshiping their brother as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We have a choice to make. Hearing about Jesus will either infect you with a good disease or it will inoculate you. And I'm concerned that the church today is full of people who've been inoculated by the truth. They've heard the Bible. They've taught the Bible. They've been deacons. They've been Sunday school teachers. They've been great servants. They've been on mission trips. And they know the Bible. And they know that they know the Bible. And no more does the teaching of God, the authority of God, the Scripture of God, it's not leading them anymore. We're not following Jesus anymore. We're not leaning in and listening to what He's saying and going where He's going because we got that Jesus figured out. Oh, he's just a homeboy from Nazareth. May God help us to never find Jesus to be so familiar that we no longer hear Him and see our great need for Him and stop following Him. And instead, may we pursue Him with all that we've got all the days of our lives. We must not let Jesus become so familiar that we stop hearing His message. But secondly, we must not stumble over Jesus, but we must honor Him. The people of Nazareth acknowledge that Jesus' teaching is astounding. They recognize His miracles. They know His background. But look at the last sentence in verse 3. They took offense at Him. The word offense means stumbling block. It comes from the word that means stumbling block. It occurs eight times in the Gospel of Mark. Each time it signifies obstructions that prevent one from coming to faith and following Jesus. Despite astounding teaching and miraculous evidence, notice who the Nazarenes stumble over. The people from Nazareth. They stumble not over Jesus' teaching, per se, but over Jesus Himself. They stumble at Him. The person and authority of Jesus is what they stumble over. What, what's the message for us, church? Don't, don't blame the preacher or your Sunday school teacher or your mom or your dad for the fact that you're rejecting Jesus. When it comes down to it and you've heard the Word of God and you've heard the Gospel of God and you know that Jesus is an authority, no matter who presented that to you, the decision you have to make is what you're going to do with Jesus Himself. The people of Nazareth are, as Aiken writes, scandalized by all this talk and hoopla about Jesus. The works that He does, they can't deny, and His words they cannot handle, but they do not care. Despite overwhelming evidence, 
they will not believe that He is the Christ, the Son of God. But do you know what Psalm 118 says? 118.22 The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief corner stone. And we have two options this morning, church. We can stumble over Jesus, the cornerstone, or we can honor Him and receive Him and pursue Him as our salvation. You know, you stumble over fixed objects, right? Objects that you refuse to honor or respect. A few days before we went to Puerto Rico, I was playing a game in our living room with my precious daughter, Elizabeth. It was a simple impromptu game, unplanned. I had one of those stress squeegee balls. Everybody know what those are? And I was playing keep away from Elizabeth. First it started on the couch and then I said, I'm going to make this a little more fun and I threw it down into the hallway and she got up to go after it and I got up to chase her. And we have these nice bar stools. They aren't very heavy. I didn't honor them. <laughs> And I went chasing Elizabeth and put that left foot down. I was going to get a little extra mojo. And I stuck the end of that bar stool between my third and fourth toe. And I immediately fell on my face and tried not to cry because I'm a dad. <laughs> didn't hit it that hard. Didn't make any sense. But I knew that I had broken my toe. Surely you didn't break your toe. Get up the next morning and say, it's like, yeah, you broke your toe. <laughs> I didn't honor the fixed object in my path. When Jesus is in your path, you honor Him by appropriately dealing with His presence. His authority is immovable. It is fixed. You can't push Him aside. You either have to take Him up as your Savior or you bypass Him and miss Him altogether. When it comes to Jesus, the way you honor Him is by getting off of your own path and putting all your hope and trust in Christ the solid rock. But the people of Nazareth don't honor Jesus. They don't sanctify Him as the Lord in their hearts, but they reject Him. And it, hit, it hits home for Jesus. Do you see that in verse 4? He, he calls it out in his hometown, his relatives, and even for now his own family. Jesus acknowledges right in front of us how much it breaks his heart when we don't honor him and set him apart as Christ and King and God. They knew him, but they could not explain him, so they rejected him. We must guard North Ronald Baptist Church against the danger of becoming so familiar with Jesus that we forget to honor him. As, G as Aiken writes, in a sense, we should never get comfortable with Jesus. His goal is not to make us comfortable. His goal is to bring us to repentance and faith. Humbly falling at His feet, confessing Him as Lord and God. He's not your homeboy, your buddy, or your soulmate. Nor is He an ordinary guy who lived 2,000 years ago, stirred things up for a while, and got nailed to a cross for His troubles. His hometown got it wrong. His relatives, at least for a while, got it wrong. The religious leaders got it wrong. Rome got it wrong. And still today, people are getting Him wrong. Now church, I want to be a church where if people stumble over something, the thing that they're stumbling over is Jesus Himself. There's all sorts of things that people can stumble over. Our cultural preferences, our political convictions, our sports allegiances, 
And they're fun to discuss, and some of them are even important. But we must not forget, we serve an eternal king who reigns over a forever kingdom. And so my prayer for North Roanoke Baptist Church is that if anybody were to walk in and hear the message priest, or sit in a Sunday school class, or mingle with the people, and they would leave, and they would be offended, that the only thing they would stumble over and be offended by is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Let's not put anything in the way of any man, woman, boy, girl, or child from being confronted with the authoritative presence of King Jesus. And let Jesus Himself draw all men, women, boys, and girls to Himself. Church, if we're going to see the power of God, the saving, resurrecting power of God at work in our midst, we must not let familiarity with Jesus prevent us from receiving His message. We must not stumble over Jesus, but we must honor Him. And finally, we must acknowledge our brokenness and believe in Him. What is on the line in what we do with Jesus? Everything. Everything's on the line. He stilled the storm, cast out a legion of demons, cured a woman with a flow of blood, raised a girl from the dead. But then in verse 5, He could do no miracle there. Does Jesus lack miracle working power all of a sudden? Of course not. But the man Jesus could not because the God Jesus would not. Because the life changing power of God is not available where the Son of God is dishonored by man's stubborn unbelief. There are only two times in Scripture when Jesus wonders at something or is amazed by something. Verse 6, He wonders at their unbelief. When, when does He wonder in a positive sense? Do you remember the story of the Roman centurion? His servant is dying and Jesus is going to go see His servant and the centurion says, Jesus, why don't you just heal them now? You can heal just with your word. And Jesus says, I haven't seen that kind of faith in all of Israel. That, and he says, I, the centurion says, I'm a man under authority. Jesus, I know you have the authority. Just speak the word and my servant will be healed. Jesus wonders at his great faith. And then he wonders in chapter 6 of Mark's gospel. He wonders at the unbelief of his own Hebrew hometown. Which is it with North Roanoke Baptist Church? When Jesus looks at us as a people of God, does He marvel and wonder at our great faith? Or does He wonder and marvel at our unbelief, which comes from a presumptive familiarity with Jesus? I don't know the answer. I don't know the answer for your marriage, for your life, for your family, for our church. I really don't. But I do know that this text is warning us that sometimes we can be like Nazareth, relying on what we think we know and no longer depending upon Christ our King. But we don't have to stay there, church. Do you want to see the resurrecting power of God at work in the valley? Do you want to see the resurrecting power of God at work across the commonwealth and around the world? Then we have this text warning us that there are things that we can do in order to open the door that Christ the Son would be honored again. Even though Nazareth does not deserve it because of their unbelief, what does Jesus do? He still works a few miracles there. Who does He work miracles for? Those who are sick. Those who are faint-hearted. Those who acknowledge their need for Jesus. And this morning, if you are sick, I want to encourage you, 
to run to Him, make much of Jesus, don't stumble over Him, but honor Him and let Him be the one who lifts you up. If you are longing for a move of God's power in the valley through our church that it can only, can only be explained by God, then I want to invite you, church, this morning, whether where you are or perhaps even coming forward this morning to say, as I look at Nazareth and as I look at my life, as I look at my home, as I look at my church, I wonder whether Jesus could wonder at my great faith. And I'm tired of sitting on the sidelines and not being someone who's using every ounce of what God has given me in order to have faith in Christ and see Him work miracles in this valley and around the world. So I don't know where you are this morning, but I want to invite you, Church of God, to take today and say, I want to be a church. I want to be a church member who is a vessel of great belief and great trust and great faith through whom God can do great things to exalt His Son and bring His healing and His salvation to the watching world. If that's where you are this morning, we invite you to either pray where you are or pray here at the altar and ask God to move and to work among us unlike ever before. Why don't you stand as we pray? King Jesus, we adore you this morning. We worship you this morning. And we confess, God, that sometimes we put so many things in front of Jesus in terms of our valuing of them. God, we confess to you that we put Jesus on the shelf besides so many other things. But Jesus stands over all. He's greater than all. And we pray, God, that if we've been stumbling over Christ... That today that we would stand on Christ the solid rock. That we would anchor our lives in Him. We would be motivated by Him. That our joy would be found in Him. That our salvation would be found in Him and in no other. And God, that you would find that we are a people of great faith. Knowing that at, at a word that you can heal and raise up and deliver and save. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning as we sing. If you're a guest and you've never heard the gospel presented like that, you've been dancing around Jesus but not yet trusted in Jesus, we invite you to come. If you're a member of our church, you want to rededicate your life to God and walking in great faith, we invite you to come. And maybe you're just a faithful member and you say, you know what? Today's the day. Mark it down. I'm going to be marked as a man or a woman of great faith until Christ comes. Whatever your need. We invite you to come as we sing.